Due to COVID-19, this episode was recorded via Zoom. We apologize for the lowered sound quality. Hi, and welcome to the DLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development supported by the Swedish Research Council. This month, we are joined by Melanie Kamet, Clarence Dillion Professor of International Affairs in the Department of Government and Chair of the Harvard Academy of International and Area Studies at Harvard. Melanie also holds a secondary faculty appointment in the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. In this episode, we discuss healthcare quality in Lebanon, both within the Lebanese population and healthcare received by Syrian refugees. We also discuss social and political factors that affect where citizens choose to seek care and what role international partnerships play in healthcare quality. You can find more information about Melanie and her work in the description below. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lust. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you, Melanie. It's great to have you with us. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today about some really interesting work that you've been doing, looking at healthcare quality, particularly in Lebanon, both quality within the Lebanese population between co-sectarian and non-co-sectarian groups, as well as healthcare to refugees. So I'm really excited about the work and look forward to hearing your thoughts on it. I want to start out by just talking a little bit about what quality healthcare is and how you measure it, because that's a key concept that we're going to be talking a lot about. So we've been adapting measures from economists who've developed tools for measuring the quality of healthcare, particularly Jishnu Das, who's an economist at the World Bank, and his collaborators. And these focus largely on what they refer to as process quality. So the quality of healthcare captured by how doctors exert themselves in applying their knowledge to treat patients, in asking questions, in conducting examinations, and so forth. And they make a compelling argument that process quality is the most important component of healthcare quality and arguably of other types of sectors as well, like education, because you can have the greatest machines in the world and infrastructure in a healthcare setting. But if doctors don't work to their knowledge frontier, if they don't exert themselves in treating patients, then you're going to have poor quality healthcare. So this is a distinct form of healthcare quality, the others being things like infrastructural quality and other factors. And so we focus on process quality and capture it in particular on the objective side with something called the Doctor Effort Index, which is a composite index of how long the doctor spent with the patient, how many physical examinations they conducted, how many health-related questions they asked, and these sorts of things. And again, we did not invent these measures. We've adapted them from research that's been done in a wide variety of developing countries where you don't have access to things like electronic medical records, which are another important source. We can think of healthcare quality in both objective and subjective terms. So subjectively, people have opinions about the quality of care that they're receiving whether they feel that the doctor treated them with dignity and care 
and whether they feel that the doctor listened to them, whether the diagnosis was explained carefully and that sort of thing. And some people in public health have argued that this is just as important as objective quality, especially because patients are more likely to comply with medical advice when they feel that their doctors are caring for them properly. So there are reasons to think that subjective quality is important as well as objective quality. And there's a large literature in public health that looks at the relationship between objective and subjective quality. Thank you. You also talk a lot about supply and demand. So another set of concepts I want to get on the table before we delve into your results. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about each of those. When we talk about supply, we're talking about the providers themselves as individual providers. Doctors in particular is the focus of our research, but there's other healthcare workers. And we're also talking about the institutions in which they operate. So the centers in which they operate, the organizations that run those centers and so forth. And we focus in some of our work on not just the quality of care that those organizations offer in their healthcare services, but also who they're targeting and where they locate their services as a proxy for who they're targeting. So that's one factor involved here, but there's also a demand side set of factors in that patients have some choice in where they can go. And so there's an interesting set of questions, particularly in places that have diverse types of providers related to where do people choose to get their health care. To some degree, this is shaped by factors like geography and access to transportation, but it's also shaped by other factors, which is one component of the research that we've looked at, arguably more social and perhaps even political factors as well. So when we think about Lebanon, where you've done a lot of your work, there's interesting questions because I think many people wouldn't necessarily think that there's something called a sectarian service provider, right? So you start out by talking about whether or not people are going to co-sectarian or non-co-sectarian service providers. So help us to understand both what it means to have sectarian service provision and also why sectarianism is important inside Lebanon. So first of all, I should say that in Lebanon, the largest provider of healthcare is the private for-profit sector. Although I haven't looked at numbers recently, I would imagine that's declining tremendously right now in the context of the horrific triple crisis that Lebanon is facing with an economic meltdown, with the Beirut blast of August 4th, 2020, and with the COVID crisis. And we've seen as a result of these combined crises, an enormous emigration of top quality doctors out of Lebanon most of whom I believe were in the private for-profit sector, which again is the group where anyone of means would go. There's a tremendous faith in the private sector provision in Lebanon, justified or unjustified is besides the point, but that's where most people went. However, not everybody could afford to go there. And there is a substantial sector a growing sector, and I would imagine really growing right now sector in Lebanon of not-for-profit providers that are either directly related to the state through some agency like the Ministry of Public Health or municipalities, or in some cases, the Ministry of Social Affairs will run health centers. Those, at the time that we did our data collection in 2017, 2018, those providers accounted for about one quarter of the nonprofit subsidized sector. The other three quarters are composed of what we call non-state providers, and they can be divided roughly into three groups. And somewhat conveniently, they constitute each about a quarter of the nonprofit sector. 
So there's also unaffiliated local NGOs, local Lebanese organizations that provide healthcare and other services. And then there's two other categories that we divide these facilities into. One um, are run by religious organizations and Lebanon is renowned for having multiple religious communities. So these are run by a variety of Christian organizations of Sunni Muslim organizations and Shia Muslim organizations, a handful of Druze and others. And so those are religious charities, but then we have political parties that run health centers, usually through affiliated welfare wings. And so Hezbollah has a network of centers. The Future Movement, which is the dominant Sunni organization, political party in Lebanon, although it's been declining in recent years, used to run health centers. They shut them all down several years ago before we started our data collection. And then there's a variety of other parties like the Shia ML movement and others that have run health centers. So there's political and religious organizations that provide health care linked to different communities. And in one of our papers, we merge them all and code them by which religious community they're affiliated with. And sometimes the lines get a little blurry because while parties have definitely marked providers linked to them, they sometimes also have close relationships with providers that are from the same religious community. And in part, what you're pointing to, right, is the linkage to between sectarianism or religious communities and the parties themselves, right? So that the fact that those are often closely identified makes for the fact that we find these religious clinics or religious service providers also being tied to a political party. Yeah. And one thing that's worth elaborating for people who are not familiar with the Lebanese political context is this is a power sharing system that explicitly allocates offices and de facto access to resources by sectarian community, which automatically politicizes sect in public and social life. I want to underscore that sectarianism is by no means the major identity of many people, and they have multiple social and political identities. And in fact, it's politics that matter more than religion. It's just that religion has been politicized here quite explicitly. This is by no means the only country in the world where this is going on. There's lots of non-Middle Eastern countries where you have power sharing systems and other systems where religion or ethnicity is politicized. And within the region, there's other cases as well. I mean, Iraq is the most obvious one. It doesn't have the same kind of formal power sharing system that Lebanon has, but it's de facto the same kind of confessional or not confessional, but sectarian and ethnic in the case of Iraq. And when we think about the Lebanese who are trying to decide where to go, which clinic to go to, where to seek help, obviously in an ideal world, it doesn't really matter where they go, they get the best care possible. But you look at the question of whether or not they are getting better care if they're going to a co-sectarian clinic or one that's not. Um, and also start by asking the question of, are they more likely to go to a co-sectarian clinic or provider than one who's not? Can you tell us a little bit about your findings? We, in one of our papers, which recently was published in the journal Governance, we look explicitly at this question. And the first thing I should say is that the majority of patients in our sample go to non-sectarian centers. So it's not like everyone is funneling themselves into political, sectarian, and religious institutions. It's not like everyone is seeking those out. But when they do go to a center affiliated with a religious community or a sectarian community, 
it's overwhelmingly from a center from their own religious identity. And this is true across the board. You see a little bit more cross-sectarian patterns when it comes to, say, Sunnis or Shia. They're more likely to go to a Christian center or an outgroup center. But even within those communities, it's overwhelmingly in-group. And I remember years ago, I was conducting an interview for my book that came out in 2014, which looked at the politics of welfare allocation in Lebanon. And I remember sitting in a party office with the director of medical services for this political party. And he said to me, it used to be that people would come in and want a referral for a urologist, period. And now they want a urologist from our community. So he was commenting on these selection effects that he observed over time in his capacity as director of medical services for this health center. And he himself, as activist in a, uh, you know, an active leader in a sectarian political party was shocked at this trend, this going trend, which he attributed to the rising political salience of sectarianism in the wake of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which set off a lot of sectarian political tensions in the region. And then, of course, the assassination of Hariri, Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri in Lebanon, which also sparked Sunni Shia political tensions and so forth. So he said this was a new growing phenomenon that was not necessarily prevalent prior to these macro-political developments. You seem to explain this in part, though, by the social networks, who knows whom, is not only about it being a political allegiance, but also about the network effect itself. Do you understand that correctly? Absolutely, yes. One of the things that seems to be coming up time and time again in the massive social science literature on ethnicity and development and public goods provision is that social networks really matter and social networks tend to be structured on group lines. Not necessarily because people consciously say, I only want to talk to Sunni or Shia, but because in our everyday lives, we tend to socialize with or work with even in some cases, people from our own communities. And this is particularly true in places where tensions have been highly politicized and maybe have been the site of violence, which tends to create greater homogenization of residential patterns. So we saw this in the wake of the Lebanese civil war, where if you look at pre and post demographic residential patterns, there's much more homogeneity of communities than prior to the war. You can see this in Iraq as well and countless other examples. So what we find is that when people go to in-group centers, centers from their own religious communities, they cite by a wide margin that they have a connection to a doctor there or some kind of intermediary that got them care there. But when they go to a center not from their religious community, they choose it for different reasons. It's usually for more sort of technical reasons like, oh, there's a known specialist in that condition that I seem to have or whatever it might be. So there's different rationales that people self-report in why they opted for one type of center over another. And then when you look at the quality of care that a person actually gets once they're at a clinic, how much difference does it make if the provider is from their sect or not? 
we do find that there is a, what we're referring to an in-group advantage, that there is a substantive and statistically significant difference when people go to out-group versus in-group providers. And this is among that pool of respondents who went to the sectarian providers, the religious or political providers. And so people that go to a center that's run by an organization outside of their own religious community get fewer physical examinations, the examinations are shorter, and overall we find that doctor effort, this index that we've constructed, is lower when it comes to outgroup members. And we think this has something to do with the social network effect, building on the literature on diversity and public goods provision. We know that the monitoring networks among co-religionist communities or co-ethnic communities tend to be stronger. The social ties tend to be stronger, and you of all people are quite familiar with this, given your innovative work on social ties and development and related issues. So this helps to make the monitoring of quality better. This is what we think is the mechanism underlying this effect, that people tend to have more common reference. And so you feel like you're being watched more if you're a provider when you're seeing someone from your own community than from another community. There's much more informal accountability playing out because of these social networks that constitute a form of informal accountability. And then when we think about some of your other work, it's very interesting because we think about what is the ultimate outsiderness. It is being a refugee. So Lebanon has had large number of Syrian refugees come in during the Syrian civil war. And you also are looking with Aitub at the question of whether or not those refugees receive high quality care and in the cases in which they do. Can you tell us a little bit about those findings? Sure, yeah. And I should mention that we do a check in this paper that focuses only on the Lebanese context and whether Lebanese get better care when they go to their own community or outside by looking at whether this finding holds for Syrian refugees. And we find it doesn't hold, which I think corroborates the argument that there's some kind of social network effect possibly a sort of political proselytism effect as well in the case of political party providers, but certainly the social network effect. Because if you have a Sunni Syrian going to a Sunni provider versus a Christian provider, and we don't see a difference, that makes sense if the mechanism is social networks. Because Syrians, as you say, are outsiders here. They're not integrated in social networks, even if they have a shared religious identity. So we don't see this effect holding when it comes to Syrians. So this prompted us also, given that half of our patient sample is Syrian, to also look at the quality of care that Syrians get when they go to Lebanese health centers. And I should say that our patient sample 50-50 Lebanese-Syrian is totally consistent with other data that shows the composition of who goes to these subsidized health centers. So it wasn't that we got a sort of oversample of Syrians. It's very consistent. There's a lot of Syrians going to Lebanese health centers, and particularly these low-cost subsidized ones, because this is a largely impoverished population. And so we know that Lebanon, it's well known, is hosting the largest refugee population in the world on a per capita basis. So there's a lot of Lebanese entering the health system. And so we look at a similar set of questions, largely focusing on objective quality, 
in a working paper that we have looking at the quality of care that Syrian refugees versus Lebanese nationals get when they go to the same set of health centers that we've been referring to. And we have a whole bunch of reasons why you might expect they get inferior care and what it might have to do with discriminatory attitudes towards Syrians, which we find some evidence for including in the population of educated professionals, such as doctors. So this is not just a quote-unquote, ordinary citizen phenomenon. It seems to extend to educated professionals as well. And so there's a variety of reasons why we might expect that Syrians get inferior quality of care. And there's conversely a number of reasons why we might expect that they get equal quality of care. For one thing, people have compassion and altruism. And we know that many Lebanese have exhibited extraordinary compassion and altruism. And the other thing is we're looking at unequal dyads here. We're not looking at the attitudes of Lebanese nationals to Syrian refugees, which you could say is also unequal in that Syrians are marginalized in the population, but it's not quite the same relationship as what we are looking at, where you have a skilled provider serving a, a Syrian refugee patient. And so these providers have taken the Hippocratic Oath so they are obligated professionally to serve all patients equally, regardless of their social status and so forth. Now, we know in reality that there's no such thing as a perfect human and that everybody has unconscious bias. And there's a robust literature in public health focusing a lot on the United States that shows that when you have outgroup combinations like white doctors and black patients, for example, there is a mismatch in terms of the quality of care. So this is pretty well documented, actually extremely well documented in some recent studies that randomize patients to different providers in the United States. I should say that my co-author and I are well aware that in this mythical ideal research design, we would have randomly assigned patients to providers. This was absolutely not possible in this context for a variety of ethical reasons and due to political sensitivities. So we would not have felt comfortable doing that. It was just impossible. At any rate, we do the best we can with the data at hand to try to probe these questions. And so we have a lot of divergent expectations about what the quality of care might be for Syrian refugees in these health centers. And to cut to the chase, we find solid evidence that Syrians do not receive inferior quality care in Lebanese centers. And so we spend the second half of our working paper looking at what might underlie this difference. And I just first want to interject that we feel that this is an important contribution to the scholarship on host country attitudes towards refugees, which is growing and growing first in the context of Western Europe and the United States, and now increasingly in developing countries. And that research thus far has largely focused on attitudes expressed usually in sort of hypothetical survey research contexts and survey experiments. And it's valuable research, but we feel that we're complementing it with attention to behaviors, to the actual treatment of refugees. So that's where one of the contributions we see of this work. And so we probe what is going on behind this. And we find that the group of health centers that are pulling up the average quality of treatment that Syrians receive in these centers are those centers that have partnerships with international NGOs. And so we have a variety of arguments about why we think those partnerships might incentivize better quality care. 
I want to go back to your point about thinking about the behavior towards refugees as well as the attitudes towards them. Do you know of any other work that's being done on the actual service provision of refugees and populations or sort of the potential differential care between refugees and non-refugee populations? So there is, to my knowledge, a fair amount of work in public health looking at what kinds of health conditions Syrians are presenting with in health centers and so forth. To my knowledge, and this doesn't mean it you know, doesn't exist, I don't know of work that's systematically comparing the treatment of refugees to host country populations. It may exist out there, to my knowledge. I'm not aware of it. We were largely referencing literature in public health from other settings, like, for example, this American public health literature on racial congruity in healthcare settings. To my knowledge, I don't believe it exists, but that may be changing right now. But we think that's an important contribution here of this kind of work. Yeah, I actually think it's a very key contribution and something that would be also very interesting to look at in Sweden and other places, right, where those are very important questions because places where it draws into question too how the public sector deals with refugees. So what do you think accounts for this lack of difference, particularly in the cases where these are linked to international NGOs? So we find pretty compelling evidence that the quality of care is boosted when centers have an international NGO partnership. And we spent some time trying to dig into what determines those partnerships and also what they bring. So they bring resources and all kinds of additional support, material and non-material. And what we think is going on, and this is partly based on qualitative interviews with a randomly selected subset of doctors at the health centers in our sample, is that doctors and centers have incentives to perform better when they have international partnerships. And partly on the center level, you get access to more resources, you get access to a steady stream of patients that are paid for or subsidized by international organizations. And at the doctor level, we think this is related to micro-level labor market dynamics. So in relevant sociological and economic literature, we've learned about this phenomenon called internal brain drain, which basically refers to when people in a country that has a lot of international organizations operating seek jobs in that sector over domestic opportunities. And it's a rational thing to do. These international organizations often pay higher salaries. They come with benefits that are quite generous. And in the current climate in Lebanon, many of them are paying in dollars, which is absolutely critical because the Lebanese lira has been so devalued that it's become much, much harder for people to make a living, make ends meet when they're paid in Lebanese lira. But this, of course, postdates our data collection. The the total financial meltdown had not yet occurred. Nonetheless, the incentives, the job market incentives were still there at the time of data collection. So we think that's what's going on. And I want to underscore, we're not trying to be cynics here and say there's no such thing as an altruistic or professionally motivated provider. That is absolutely not the case. We're talking about average effects, and that may also be operating, but This is the effect that we find evidence for in our sample. We don't find much evidence for a sort of altruistic behavior driving this outcome. 
Yeah, one of the things that you hear a lot is that subsidies and support, et cetera, goes to the Syrians or the refugees, and then the domestic population is left less well off than otherwise it could be, right? And housing prices and other sets of prices increase at the same time. So I'm just wondering, have you done any work at looking at whether or not those same centers with the international NGO subsidies or the international NGO linkages, they're also providing to Lebanese at the same time, right? I mean, they're providing both for Lebanese and for Syrians. Does it make any difference for the Lebanese? Are they then better off if they're in a place where it's also gotten those resources and higher paid doctors and they may be actually advantaged in that case? Is there any argument to be made in that regard? I believe across the board, we're seeing that there is improved quality of care in these centers. But it definitely, in our findings in this working paper, we look at the average marginal effect of being Syrian as opposed to being Lebanese in centers with and without a partner, an international NGO partner. And it does seem that the effect holds more for Syrians, but there's also, I think, average better care for Lebanese as well. But the effect seems to be more prevalent for Syrians based on what we're finding. But there's in work that others have done, I think there's some compelling evidence that resources that international NGOs bring in and give to families have had broader positive effects on the communities where refugees reside and that they, these re additional sort of cash grants, for example, going to Syrian refugees will help local economies and so forth. This is a really complicated and hot button set of issues. And I think the political context also really mediates the way these issues play out. So in recent work, we've seen that the Jordanian population expresses some altruistic sentiment in their attitudes towards Syrian refugees. And so the co-authors of this recent paper in Comparative Political Studies, which is a really exciting paper, are finding that, you know, we should also think about humanitarian motivations and shared cultural factors as driving more positive attitudes towards refugees. I think that's a valuable finding, but I suspect it would operate quite differently in the Lebanese context, where religion and sect are much more politicized, and you have a lot of polarization around the question of Syria and Syrian refugees for a variety of historical reasons. So I suspect there's some context-specific factors as well. One of those historical reasons being Syria's role in, in the civil war, this political position with, within Lebanon. I want to come back to the question in a minute of how far we can kind of take these findings, but I think it's also worth thinking about. One might argue that the reason why these clinics or the providers who are tied to international NGOs effectively do better is that the international NGOs have chosen the better performing clinic to begin with. Um, so I just want to get your reaction to that thinking so that we can all think through it. So I think that's a great point. We do briefly address this in our working paper, but I think we can do more as we revise this paper. The, the reason, according to our interview with international NGOs, with the main coordinating body that assigns these partnerships, the reason why they arise, it has to do with clusters of Syrian refugees. So in the Lebanese context, they don't have camps for refugees. This has not been permitted, but there are absolutely gatherings of Syrian refugees. And these partnerships are established in centers that are prior to the arrival of Syrians were located in those places. And so that's the official allocation criteria for a partnership. 
So I think we can do more to show how that guides the distribution of partnerships in this paper. From what we can tell thus far, it doesn't seem to be that better quality centers are selected and then the partnerships play out there. It seems that it's driven by where the clusters of refugees end up. But we have some data that could really probe that finding further and I think make a more convincing statement about that. But it's also great, right, because in some ways for people who want to think that international organizations can play a role and can help to alleviate the problems that refugees face. I mean, what you're really pointing to is the idea that they can, that there are ways in which they can help to lift the quality of health care for refugees and really make a difference. I think that's exciting finding. I think that is a positive finding. I mean, there's all kinds of other implications that we allude to in the end of the paper that are complicate this finding. And of course, we're well aware of debates in Syria about the role of international organizations and how they, at a minimum, inadvertently prop up the regime. But this is a different context. And here it seems that international NGOs seem to have some positive effect for refugees. Maybe we can end on this then. I'm interested in your thoughts on how far should we take these findings, right? So Lebanon is a fascinating country and very interesting. And like you said, it's, sectarianism is very politicized there. It has a very complicated relationship with Syrian refugees. My hunch is that they actually, these findings travel quite far, but I'm very interested to hear from you where you think might be the limits, where wouldn't you think that what you're finding is able to hold, and also a little bit about what else are you working on that might be fleshing this out even more. So I do think that the meta argument about the international NGO effect that we highlight towards the end of the paper, I think this should travel to humanitarian contexts, to places where you have conflict-affected settings and humanitarian crises, because we see that INGOs come into these places in high proportions, and this has effects on local labor markets for educated professionals. So I would expect that this kind of finding generalizes, and particularly in places where the refugee crisis becomes somewhat politicized and where attitudes might be strained towards refugees. So in a place where you have much more welcoming attitudes towards refugees, maybe you'd see different dynamics and so forth. But I think the larger finding should generalize to other places where you have lots of international NGOs operating and this kind of internal brain drain dynamic happening as well. It may have perverse effects in the longer term, which is an area that perhaps we or others might explore going forward. I also think there's more room to explore whether perceived public health emergencies mobilize actors to perform better, even if they harbor prejudiced attitudes against refugees. So for example, it may be that refugees, by virtue of coming out of a context where health systems have been degraded and where communicable diseases have spiked, even ones that were previously eradicated, it may be that refugees are more susceptible to communicable diseases and providers in whose countries might feel like, oh, we've got to really block the spread of this. And so that might be another mechanism worth exploring. And we find some suggestive evidence for this in our data. So I think that's another area that sort of public health social science might explore in future research. Thank you. This is fantastic. And again, extremely interesting work. And I appreciate you joining us and sharing both your findings with us, but also the thoughts about what work there is to be done in the future. It's really great. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.